Okay, we're live. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to the After Sunday podcast. Uh, I am uh, your esteemed host, Corey Alstead, uh, and I'm here with our lead pastor, Matthew B. Price. And we actually have a very special guest with us today, Laura Croker, who Ooh. is uh, part of our community here. She is a nurse in one of our local hospitals, and uh, we're super excited today to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and vaccinations and all that kind of stuff. The mark of the beast, you know, all those things. It's gonna <laughs> be some light stuff. Yeah, some light stuff. Yeah. It's going to be great. Um, Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, Corey. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I'm Real? doing okay. Okay. I'm really worried about your question. Whatever you're about oh, no, to no. ask I, me. Well, I wanted to know, um, what are you um, doing for fun these days? Oh. Yeah. Well, that's easy. Is it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, what, what, do you think, what do you think I do for fun when I have three little children? Hmm. Who wake me up in the morning. Who? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You do lots of like charades and like, um, oh, oh, Tickle Monster, right? You were saying it's a Tickle Monster game. 100%. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's fun. No, I'm spending lots of time with the kids yeah. and enjoying every minute of that. Yeah, and cool. Laura. Yes. Well, we recently found the function on our TV that has karaoke. So oh. we've been trying to do some karaoke with the kids, which has been very fun. Nice. Oh, what's your go-to musician? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, or for song. the kids, it's more like we've done some Moana. We've oh, done, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Holly really likes Deck the Halls. We've done some Deck the Halls, oh. Frosty the Snowman. So nice. it's pretty eclectic. Christmas yeah. in April. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. We would have a lot. And what are you, what kind of, if you, if you had to, if you could go to any concert, which concert would you go to? Besides yours? Yeah, besides, oh, <laughs> yes. That is that, such well, a good yeah. answer. That goes without saying, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to name a few, I'm going to name a few artists here. Uh, Def Leppard. Nope. Nope. Okay. Uh, Rat. <laughs> Oh. Nope. <laughs> uh, okay, hang on. Bon Jovi. Why? I'm yeah, going right sure. to the 80s metal bands. Okay, hang on. I'll, I'll be honest. Okay. We really enjoyed the Taylor Swift album, the new yes. one that's come out. The new, or I like guess the one, it's not the newest new. Folklore? One? Was it Folklore? Yeah, with Bonnie Vera. Yes, that, that yeah, specific oh. song. Yeah. Exile. Yeah. I, would like to, I would like to go see them sing that song. Yes, I yeah. agree. Mm. I just read somewhere that Bonnie Vera, who's like great, his biggest playlist is This Is Taylor Swift. Isn't that funny? Oh. So, he's, so he gets the most streams from the playlist on Spotify. This is Taylor Swift. And it's kind of funny because it's like, of course, Taylor Swift is that big. And he has the oh, one, yeah. maybe he has more than one song with her. He has a couple songs with her. But anyways, so great. Yeah, cool. I, I think you do need to update us on your, oh. on your rat situation. <laughs> just just so everybody like... knows, like, before, like la- last, last podcast that yeah. we did, Corey uh, uh, definitely shocked me with a story about a rat that ha- that twice was sleeping in his barbecue. I don't know if he was sleeping, or I mean, <laughs> well, definitely not after you turned the burners on. Yeah. <laughs> Something was happening, yeah. So, okay, oh, okay. This is the thing. This is this is the PG thirteen part of this of, of the podcast. So, and it's kind of nasty. Do you want me to share? Is it okay? Oh. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, here's what happened. This is awful. So, okay, so we, I, I set one of those traps, and they're really big traps, like the, the, or not big, but they're like the nasty ones from Home Depot, the black ones, and they've got the, and they just like snap. So I set one up, but I didn't set it in the barbecue, especially because I think I was feeling slightly convicted uh, by your talk about eating off the barbecue that has just killed a rat or whatever. So I didn't. I set it up on, under the porch. And then, so a couple days later, I went, I went downstairs, I went outside, and I looked under the porch, and the, the trap wasn't there. And I'm like, oh no, I have some poor little rat 
wandering around with this, <laughs> with this massive, like dragging the, you know, dragging the, uh, the trap with him. But then I heard a sound and I could hear this, uh, this, this trap being drugged and it was under the stair. Okay, this is sad. So then I looked and it's a poor little mouse. A oh. mouse, yeah. And okay, you got so the mouse, not I, the rat. I know. And the thing is the mouse was, the mouse, so its head. <laughs> oh. Okay. Its head was in the trap. And it was still very much alive, and it kept, it was trying, it was squeaking like crazy, and I felt so awful. So then I'm like, hey, oh. I have to do the right thing. I have to kill this mouse, right? I got to send him to his maker. He's, this is like awful, right? So I'm like, <laughs> so I, and actually I texted Jeff Renault, of all people, why would I text Jeff Renault? Anyway, so I text Jeff Renault, and I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, you gotta, like, you gotta, you gotta drown it. No. Yeah, well, what else, right? I'm not going to make a mess, like, you know, drop a brick on it or something. Like, how else do you kill a mouse quickly? So sure enough, I, <laughs> I put some, no one, banked, no one banked on this at all, but I, I took some, I put some gloves on, I grabbed that thing, and I, and I filled a pail of water, and I just held it under there. Oh, no. <laughs> I baptized that little, oh, little mouse. No. It, yes. <laughs> so he, anyways, he actually lasted a good minute before. This is terrible. I know. So That's a sorry. terrible story. Do we need to edit this? We People are already not listening <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> like done. And then recently we caught another one in my barbecue. What? I know. After, our, like that was a couple days ago. But like, I just want to put a word out there to anyone listening to this. Like if anyone has extermination help or like <laughs> are willing Somebody, to donate please, to our worship pastor. Someone come, come to my house. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. But it was, yeah, it was okay. We, we did cook. I sent you a picture, actually. We cooked um, burgers. Remember that? <laughs> I sent Matthew a picture of um, our, like, I had, like, hamburgers and hot dogs on the barbecue, and I'm like, caught, caught another rat on this bad boy this morning. <laughs> so funny. Anyways. Okay. Oh. All right. Okay. Funny. Laura, okay. I am so sorry. <laughs> I love it. That. It's great. This is, this yeah. Is, yeah. Okay. Well, let me try to transition. Okay. okay. <laughs> Here. Um, so... So uh, we are here with Laura just to have a conversation about um, about the current place we're in in COVID nineteen and the vast opportunity now that's just increasing every day with with people having the opportunity to get vaccinated and so I'm just so glad that you're here, Laura, and uh, I'm just excited about the conversation we're about to have um, mm-hmm. and. You know, we went kind of on a journey gathering data, uh, and and I know we've been working on this for a few days here. Uh, well, at least I know Laura and I were working on it. Corey, how much research have you done in preparation <laughs> I a, for this? I, w- I did a lot of thinking about this in the last last hour and a half, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking through what I want to say. What, yeah, what research should I bring up? Yeah. No, I'm, yeah. It's, it's on my heart for sure. No, I know. Yeah. And, and so I actually want to thank a few of my friends who just were kind of part of like a little research crew that I had. So Andrew Ransom, who works in the industry in government affairs and health economics, and he helped me with some of this. And Tim McCarthy and Ben Fredrickson, who both are uh, data uh, consumers. Yeah. <laughs> actually, all three of them, Andrew, Tim, and Ben are like data consumers. So anyway, they were just like just helping me with research and articles and stuff like that. So grateful to them. But I just want to say, like, as we come, uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're kind of, um, maybe you feel strongly about one side, you know, you, you are very uh, uh, confident in, in uh, how much this vaccine will, will help. And so you've already gone, you've maybe already been vaccinated, but maybe some of you are listening and you're, you're really kind of just unsure and you're, you're just wondering, you've got lots of questions. Um, and some of the questions, uh, you know, are, that we're going to kind of cover are just how new this 
you know, it seems like all these vaccines are so new and uh, the timeline uh, uh, with the development of these vaccines and how many people are getting them, maybe even questions around abortion, or I'm even going to tackle one uh, fairly quickly on the mark of the beast, you know, and end times and stuff like that. So you may have just a variety of questions as you're listening and we want to really come humbly. And, and a few, few weeks ago, I preached on this idea of being uh, a chimp versus a rhino. And I, and I love this idea of like a rhinoceros. If it doesn't understand something, it just kind of plows into it and tries to destroy it. But um, a chimpanzee will take something, look at it, and try to kind of just uh, discover uh, more about it and kind of plays with it and shakes it. And that's what, that's what I feel like we want to do here today is we're all just kind of being chimpanzees. We're trying to look at this, um, sort through the data. And so um, I just, full disclosure, all three of us have been va- vaccinated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, obviously we, we have landed in a place where we are, uh, we believe that, that to be vaccinated um, makes sense with the data. And so that's kind of what this conversation is going to be like. And so uh, I just do want to say this is a big deal. It is a big topic. It is difficult at times. And so hopefully you'll hear a humble heart here as we, as we share stuff. So, but Laura, we want to start with you. And we want to hear a little bit of uh, maybe a little background, uh, just so everyone knows that it was really cool. Laura reached out to me, um, I think it was like last week, and and we had a great conversation. And uh, it, I thought, Corey and I were talking, and we thought, what if it, it could become a, a, a podcast mm-hmm. here? And so, Laura, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your family, uh, how many years you've been at North Langley, just a little bio? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been at North Langley since my husband Ryan and I got married, and that was back in 2007. So Hmm. quite a while now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm originally from Ontario, so this is kind of the first home church that I've had since my home church of growing up, where actually our mutual, actually I'm not friends with him as much as I would like to be, but um, Jacob Moon Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the church that I grew up with. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, so Taught fun. my little brother guitar. That's so, so cool. Yes. Um, I work as a nurse right now in the pediatric emergency at, in the busiest hospital in BC. Hmm. So I, and I'm also doing immunizations now as well on the side at the Langley Event Center. So oh. in terms of a bit more about me, I have three kids, Reese, Holly, and Drew. So they're eight, six, and almost three. So it's a busy life. So fun. No kidding. Yeah, so awesome. fun. What great ages. Um, so Laura, do you want to just tell us like what you as a nurse um, are seeing these days? Yeah, definitely. So it's definitely been quite the long year, longest of my career for sure. Um, I remember the challenges in the early days of the pandemic was so much we didn't know what it was going to be like. We didn't know which protective gear was going to be effective against this. We were running out of protective gear like in the initial weeks even mm-hmm. of the pandemic. So a lot of stress and fear, mostly to do with the unknown. Um, and it has changed a lot throughout the course of the year, the way we do things in the hospital has changed. The way that we're treating people has changed. Sorry, I mean like patient treatment. Um, of <laughs> not just your you general person. That. like yeah. Yeah. Not, not how no. we treat people as a person, but right, right. how we handle COVID has changed a lot. And what I'm seeing now is that now in this third wave, it's really very overwhelming in the hospital. So hmm. we're seeing younger people, people that don't have pre-existing conditions so previously we I think it was that we thought it's old people it's people that have health problems but now we're just seeing that this virus has totally flipped that on end and it's young people and we're very very busy and I think it's 
been challenging for staff for sure. Staff are very burnt out and continually trying to stay on top of something that just feels like it's not going anywhere and it's getting worse and worse. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's it, it does feel like such a turn has has happened and uh, and you're seeing that firsthand. And so what what do you feel the public perception has been like, um, you know, like like kind of walk us through that from early pandemic to, to now? Yeah. So early on in the pandemic, I think, like I said, before anybody really knew what was going on, Um, I remember I was just looking at my journal last night to try to remember some of the things we were experiencing. And I had, I remember having one night shift I was going into and I felt really nervous and I rewatched our night of prayer. It was one of the first ones we did and felt like I was going into this very courageous and Mm. felt like everyone's behind us. The public's behind us. They're doing cheers every night at seven. And so I remember going into that shift being like, okay, this is super hard, this is scary, but we're all in this together. And on the days that it was, um, the early days when the volume of patients was lower, at seven o'clock outside the hospital, people would come and social distance and cheer and have signs and emergency response vehicles would come and have the sirens going. And it just really felt like the whole world was in this together. And now of course, with how long this has been going on, that has really waned and it's too bad, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, because back then it was overwhelming because it was scary, but we didn't have the volumes that we do now. And now that we have incredible volumes and the healthcare system is so stretched, it's also the time when it feels a lot of the time that the public is forgotten about mm. what we had been mm. trying to do together right. and forgotten about how um, scary it can be for healthcare workers and for people that are don't have a choice but to go to work and are trying hard to help people so it it definitely has changed a lot and again at the beginning it felt like everybody was on board to follow the rules and make sure we we got rid of this thing and now we all see that it's quite different it's such a polarized issue now which makes it harder to be courageous in the hospital and you see people that are feeling like because they think they might not get COVID that they aren't as concerned about following the rules, which when it translates, like when I see things on the news or when I hear people doing things, it translates to this feeling of burden and stress and wondering how many of these people are going to come in all at once and how many of these people are going to spread this to their family and come in and really need our help. So it's definitely changed a lot. Mm. Oh, totally. And I just so remember that myself, just being on the front porch and banging pots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now the numbers are like way higher and you guys are going through so much more. And yet, you know, I'm not out on my front porch anymore at seven. And right. so, yeah, yeah it and did, the it, cynics feels like the cynics have gotten loud, like louder and louder. And maybe the supporters have gotten quieter and quieter in a lot of ways. Like you mm-hmm. hear, yeah, I'm sure we all have people around us. I have, I have, I have friends that are, you know, on to one degree or another are, are very much like, oh, it's, you know, whether it doesn't exist or it's, you know, it's just, which always feels slightly crazy to me but you know like you you just have and they they're becoming it seems sometimes like they're becoming more and more bold on social media or whatever where it's like yeah big big statements and anyways that's Mm. that's crappy yeah yeah Yeah, and Laura like can you talk about like the mental health uh uh, impact that the impact on 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 your mental health on maybe your colleagues um yeah what 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 is that like yeah definitely I would say that the environment that I work in in the emergency room um a lot of people have always seemed quite invincible. You deal with really difficult stuff 
many of your shifts, if not all of them. And um, I think that this pandemic and how long it's gone on and just how bad it is right now is really taking a toll on a lot of people that are working in healthcare. I can speak from my experience that it's been very stressful, especially early on before we knew a lot, just the changing in how you come and go to work. You like before I could just hop in my car after my shift and leave right away. Now it's this whole process of decontaminating myself, cleaning all my things off, changing. And then when I get home, I still change right away, even though those clothes weren't really anywhere near patients and have a shower. And I think the aspects that people are just lucky that they don't have to be a part of and see is that you do these shifts and you're in these rooms in situations where you're at high risk and a lot of times there's things that are very tough and you want to go home and just be able to hug your family and be grateful but you know that you think back through the patients that you cared for and you know like that person had COVID that person might have had COVID we don't know about that person and I was very close to them so you feel like you just want to be able to come home and hug your family but you have to decontaminate yourself and think did I scrub enough did I make sure that like my hair was clean enough because I don't want to pass this on to my husband or my kids Mm -hmm. so the mental health aspect is very difficult and um, I think people just are very burnt out it's very difficult to do a job where you're in tough situations but then amidst a pandemic it's there's so many different aspects too right like Mm -hmm. being doing things that are um, not normally part of your job. So taking care of people that are not normally part of your job and helping out in different ways. And just all that can really take a toll. And then I'm fortunate to work in the kids side. So I haven't seen as many of the deaths in live time, but I know that there's a lot of people that are just getting really burnt out by having to continually be there and being exposed to so much death and grief and loss and especially for when it hits really close to home like seeing the younger people people that are my age and that are not doing well I think it's really taking a toll on people totally totally absolutely I I just uh yeah I can't imagine I mean I can't imagine being a nurse or a doctor not in this pandemic right like that's just not a (laughs) <laughs> just a job that I just feel like the stress would be high, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine now. Right. And seeing, and seeing what you're seeing. And, um, that makes sense. What, uh, just, um, a question about like social media. Like I had a friend, um, during, uh, a lot of some of the, the acute moment in the black lives matter movement in the summer, this last summer, who was a police officer. And he told me, uh, he just said, I I've got a, I've got to get off social media because, um, you know, kind of like what he was hearing about police officers or whatever. He's just like, oh, just, yeah, it's, it's, it was hard for him to be on social media. But during this moment, has it been difficult for you to be on social media? Yeah, definitely. I've actually unfollowed everything on Facebook except for a couple of like a group for work and North Langley. So I still have the account, but I don't see people's posts. So Mm. unless I choose to go looking for it then I don't see it because I was finding things to be really overwhelming um even even the things that are true like it's it can be very overwhelming just seeing 
people's experience of things in live time, you know, seeing people hospitalized and hearing about loss. But then on the other side, I find it really damaging to me and to my morale and to my just dedication and desire to do my best at work too. When I know that people are on social media breaking the rules and talking about things like anti-masking and having rallies against it when we are the ones that see those people and their families and their children coming into the hospital for things that could have been prevented. So I've, I've definitely taken a step away from a lot of the social media just because I felt how, I guess, oppressive it was to me and to my ability to be able to keep functioning. Totally, totally. Yeah, I was saying when we were talking earlier, I, I said it must, it must feel a little bit like like there's a whole bunch of armchair quarterbacks and but you guys are actually like right on the field and you're you're dealing with all the stuff in real time and you're seeing maybe the sometimes the exact opposite of what what our armchair quarterbacks are posting right they're saying it's not real it's you know whatever and, and meanwhile you're dealing with with death and with people that are extremely sick and that must be so uh yeah that must be so challenging i can't imagine and you've been part of doing the immunizations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about that, but like, can you tell us anything about what that experience has been like? Has it been fairly positive? Or yeah, it's been very positive. Um, it's been completely different from my, what I normally do. So even that has been a nice mental break, just to feel like it's I'm meeting people when they're not unwell and when they are not in desperate need of help. Um, people have been extremely happy for the most part to be there and nobody is showing up that is forced to be, to be there. So they're all choosing to. And I have just heard a lot of messages of hope from people feeling like I feel like hopeful that I'm getting this and I feel like this is a step in the right direction. And I feel like I'm being part of the solution and part of the bigger picture and things like that. I'm, I'm usually at the Langley event center right now and I was telling Corey before, people have the opportunity to write on a post-it, either things that they're thankful for or things that they're excited about. And even just seeing the walls, just covering the hockey stadium in there with post-it notes and just, it feels very hopeful. It feels like there is possibly a positive change coming. And it also just feels, again, feels a little bit akin to how early in the pandemic, the public was it felt like they were all in this together with us. Um, and then, like I said, it hasn't always felt like that. But going there feels like everybody that's there and coming is there together with us. And it feels like one less person that I'm going to have to encounter when they're sick or encounter their children when they're sick. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Corey and I got vaccinated and it was brutal. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the vaccination itself wasn't at the time. No, it wasn't. I, didn't, I barely even felt the vaccination, yeah, yeah, but boy, I got hit hard. Yeah, I, got, yeah, yeah. I got the AstraZeneca and, yeah. and um, I had run into your brother-in-law, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> who was the only person in front of me in the line. And we were both like, I was texting him that night. And I'm just like, Keith, how are you doing? He got my text in the morning and he was just like, it was brutal. And I was like, no kidding. Uh, I, Corey and I both got the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just, I literally, I, I hadn't looked at the side effects and I was just like, man. But it is, it did feel good to feel like I was part of just moving us, moving our city or our nation towards, you know, hey, greater 
um, herd immunity, whatever. But, uh, but anyway, it was, it was funny. What was it, what was it like for you? Yeah. To get yeah. That shot? No, I had like that night, especially, I think it was probably about eight hours later. I just got the chills. Like I, yeah, totally the chills. I was like, Oh, like I'm so oh, yeah. cold. I was shivering. And then, uh, the next day, like then I, after, after a good night's, a decent night's sleep, I, the next day was, was more like, um, the recovery, almost like you're, yeah, just recovering from like a, a sickness the day before. So you just felt exhausted, kind of sore and, and then by the third day, it was fine. Like, yeah, my arm was a little more, a little tender, but it was, yeah, it was kind of like what I, what I had heard it would be like. Um, so, but yeah, same with you. I was just like, I'm like, oh, good. I'm so glad. Like, I'm, I'm, that's a step in the right direction. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our friend Kyle Hendy calls it the Astra slump. That's what he called it. <laughs> After getting AstraZeneca, it's the Astra slump. Like you, you slump. Right. You know? Like slump. Yeah, <laughs> Kyle, I don't really understand. But it's like you're tired and you're just slump. like you. Yeah, I guess slump. No? Okay. okay. I don't know. It D- doesn't land for you? Slump feels like it can mean a lot of different things. I okay, back to Laura. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Laura, what, what, do you wish, what, do you wish people, what do you wish people knew um, kind of at this phase of where we're at? Yeah, I really wish people knew that we're not at a point anymore that we can think about it just about ourselves and our risk. So I feel mm. like early on, a lot of us, myself included, would go through what we knew and think, okay, based on my age and my health history, there's a good chance statistically that I'm going to be okay, so I can take comfort in that. But we're past that point now, and not only because younger people and healthy people are getting very sick and needing hospitalization and passing away, but because our each individual's um, actions and inactions really impacts everybody now. So I don't know if you've heard in the news, there's something called the R not number. So basically that means that we're trying to keep this number below one. And it basically means for every person that gets COVID, there are the R not number. If it's below one, it means that less than one person from that contagious person will probably get COVID. And if it's higher than that, it basically means that for every person that has COVID, if it's higher than one, at least one other person's going to get COVID. And right now, based on the report on the 15th of April that I looked at, is that our R naught number is above one in every single health authority of BC, except for Northern Health, and theirs is at like 0.93. So what people I wish would understand is that just because you feel that you might not get sick from COVID, just the fact that if you get it, you're very likely going to pass it to at least one other person, and so on, shows that we have to be thinking about this more in what do my actions do for the greater good or the opposite of the greater good, I guess, for people. Um, Currently, it's about one out of every 20 person over 19 is needing hospitalization. So that has been a steep increase. Mm. So if you think about your actions, then it really can directly affect like somebody else getting hospitalized. And so I think before... Yeah, we had the luxury almost of thinking of it as how is this going to affect me, but we're way beyond that. And I just really wish that people would decide that the choices that they're making, unless it's essential, then you really are contributing to the problem and contributing to the spread, even if you don't directly see it. Hmm. I also wish people would see that um, just because it sounds like in the news that we have more capacity, like there's, we're not at full capacity ICU-wise or hospital-wise, it really doesn't mean that we have a lot of room to go because, like I said, healthcare workers are burnt out, they're getting sick, they're switching jobs, they're doing different things. So just because there's a physical bed, it doesn't mean that we have a lot of room to go and a lot of room to grow in terms of this pandemic. So I just wish that people would recognize that I mean, I don't want to be all doomsday, but recognize that like, it's not 
it's not super hopeful that we have a lot more capacity for people to get sick. Mm, totally, mm. totally. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you think uh, interesting what you were saying that about like in terms of, yeah, we need to think about not just ourselves now, but others like, do you, there must be some sort of, I, I was just thinking like socioeconomic factors in this too, right? Like I feel like in a lot of ways, like, um, if, you know, people that are wealthy or have the luxury of maybe not being terribly impacted, you know, as far as their work, then maybe it's, it's easier for them just to kind of isolate or be at home or, you know, follow the rules. But I feel like people that, that actually have to go to work, that actually can't really afford it, whether we have a huge, like we have a lot of immigrants that are here and um, like, you know, you think, well, they, they don't really have the luxury of just like, yeah, I'm curious if you, have you experienced that or do you have any kind of thoughts on, on that side of things? Like, I would assume it's a factor in this. Yeah, I would say it's definitely a factor. And like any big event, I think um, this pandemic has shown the disparities that people that are less fortunate are experiencing. So if you look at all the hot spots right now in the province, so many of them are areas that are lower in the social economic status to begin with. Mm. So those, you're right, Corey, it'd be people that don't have a choice but to go to work. They don't have a choice to be able to isolate on their own. Maybe they live in multi-generational homes or they there's single parent families, things like that. So people that um, also are in jobs where they are at higher risk. So frontline workers for sure, but then also like grocery store people and just anybody where they're very essential to our functioning, but are um, sometimes in lower paying jobs and some of those communities where yeah, like I said, they, they have to go to work and they don't have the maybe the luxury of being able to work from home. I think that those of us that maybe can work from home or have the financial means to be making choices, um, we definitely need to take on responsibility to be able to protect those people that don't have a choice. And I think that's where I find it difficult too, where people still are choosing to travel. Like a lot of people that can travel have more of the means to be able to, um, but they are possibly bringing the illness into communities that don't have the means to handle it and just things like that. So I think it definitely has highlighted the disparities that we already knew about, but we can see it in like a much, much more glaring way now too. This is um, th- that that was that's so helpful, Laura, to hear your story, and and we want to hear more of it as we keep going in this podcast. So, like, I think I think your insight here today in this conversation is is massive, and um, but we we want to do is we want to take a, a, a turn here to kind of just jump into maybe some areas of pushback. So, somebody, you know, you might be listening to this podcast, and you're going, yeah, okay, I hear all of this, right? And Laura, you know, probably someone is sympathizing with how you're doing. Like, oh, it does sound hard, but I still have some, some, some feelings of being nervous about putting something in my body. Like, I just, I'm not sure about this. And I've got questions. And so what we thought we would do is just kind of have a conversation around five kind of maybe larger categories of pushback to why some, why some of us have felt some hesitancy about getting vaccinated. Um, because I, I do think that a lot of people want to be part of the healing and the solution, but the idea of putting something in their body, um, especially when certain news reports are going around, um, I know uh, for, for, for my own wife, like hearing about uh, AstraZeneca and, you know, maybe these blood clots and, you know, it just, it pops into your mind, right? You, you don't want to you want to be part of the healing or the solution, but like these things come, 
come to the forefront. And so, so we're going we're gonna to chat about five kind of big areas of pushback. And I, that vaccination hesitancy is a thing. I, you know, it, maybe, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but in America, I, I know that, um, that uh, I, I grew up hearing about the Tuskegee experiment. And this was, this was interesting. It was um, uh, in 1932, the Public Health Service in America worked with the Tuskegee Institute that began a study with African-Americans and syphilis. And the study involved 600 black men uh, 399 of them had syphilis and, and 201 didn't have the disease. But um, the study was conducted uh, without the benefit of the, of the patient's uh, informed consent and they actually never received proper treatment for their illness. And the study went on for 40 years. So the U.S. government was studying these 600 black men for 40 years without their consent and not giving them a cure for what they were struggling with. And it was this big study. And it's just, you know, and I think like, especially amongst Af African-Americans thinking about the government, it's like, do I trust the government? Mm -hmm. is, is this like, what are they doing? What are they, what are they going to give us here? Or, you know, and so um, I know that's not necessarily a vaccine thing, but I, I just feel like it's it, that kind of hesitancy about the government and stuff like that. It just, I just want to acknowledge it's a real thing mm -hmm. just as we start. Um, okay, but I want to start with the one that, that kind of a pushback that I had. And so this is one that I, that I was concerned about. And so the first one we're going to talk about here is about, um, about abortion. And so um, COVID, COVID vaccines, you know, do they contain material from aborted fetal cells? And should we as Christians be taking this? Um, and I remember hearing about this uh, a while ago, like almost a year ago, I think. And I remember having some concerns about it. But so here's the deal. When a baby dies, the tissue, including intact organs, can be donated for research purposes. Um, if babies are being aborted to make vaccines, then we as Christians would have ethical reasons to not participate in these COVID vaccinations, right? Like, so if like there were thousands of babies that were being aborted for the purpose of making vaccines, that would be, that'd be awful, be mm -hmm. terrible. Mm -hmm. um, but really the question is, is that what's really going on here? Um, and so... As a chim as trying to be a chimpanzee here, <laughs> I'm just trying to like learn, and I learned all about immortalized cell lines that I knew nothing about before this pandemic. Immortalized cell lines begin with fetal cells, but today they no longer contain actual body parts. There's no actual fetal tissue, so there's no remaining cells from that original baby. Um, these immortalized cell lines have been used for all kinds of vaccines measles, polio, chickenpox, hepatitis, mumps, rabies, rubella, smallpox. Um, and the immortalized cell line that has been used in the production of uh, three of our COVID vaccines, the Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, is actually, it's a immortalized cell line called HEK293T. HEK293T. Again, this is all new to me. But here we go. HEK293T is super popular. It's a popular immortalized cell line. And here's the deal. It was actually made from fetal tissue that came from the Netherlands in like 1972 or 1973. So there was this one baby in the Netherlands that died. And its cells uh, became the immortalized cell line HEK293. Are we okay so far? Yeah, sense. I will say, I think immortalized cell line too, just to clarify what that means, it basically just means cells that don't stop dividing. So some tumor yes. cells could be considered that. And in this case, they are cells that have been artificially manipulated to continually divide. 
So that's where you get like the immortalized cell line. So they're cells and they just keep dividing, Mm. keep growing and growing and growing and growing. Yes. Okay. Okay, Thank you. So helpful. That's so good. Um, so, so it, it, uh, now I want to say this. So even though it's one baby who in 1972 or 73 died, um, uh, that, that is, that is still wrong, right? Uh, or it could still be wrong depending on the story of how Mm -hmm. this baby died. But I want to first point out that there, one thing that was helpful for me was that there are not many babies dying to make these COVID vaccines. And so 40, I think it was actually 48 years ago, uh, this little baby died. Um, and so let's talk about this little baby because, because I care and this, and there is a, I know we, we care, sorry, all three of us care. We do care. <laughs> um, I said I care. But wait, um, just to make sure, I want to make sure you're saying, yeah. so you're saying that all the COVID, the current COVID vaccines that you just mentioned, yes, they're, they come from this one this one baby's, uh, the, the tissues that came from this baby, the cell line, uh, 40, 50 years ago. Is that what yes. you're saying? Just because yes. when you said, there's not many babies dying for this, I was like, oh, do you mean that there are others? But you're saying it's just that one. Sorry, I'm just saying it's just the one. Just the one. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank just you. To... And please ask clarifying okay. questions because yeah. I want to make sure that me as a scientist, I, <laughs> you know, uh, I need to stay in my lane as a pastor. So I'm not uh, a scientist. Actually, Laura, I did really poorly in biology. I was like the worst. Oh, me too. Yeah. I was the worst. So you're going to have to like help me here. Um, so the records are actually lost about this baby um, mm-hmm. in 1972 or three. So I did some research and they just don't know um, whether the, the tissue came from a spontaneous miscarriage or an elective abortion. We, we, we just don't know. Um, the interesting thing to note is that abortions were illegal at that time in the Netherlands. Uh, it, it wasn't until 1981 that abortion was legal. So um, it, it, could, it could be that the baby died from a spontaneous abortion, like a miscarriage, or an, an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy in which the fetus implants in the fallopian tube instead of the uterus, um, and was maybe willingly donated by the parent, right? That could be, especially if abortion is, was illegal at the time, then it, it made sense to me that probably this baby's uh, body that was donated to science was probably one done in a hospital in, in a way that uh, didn't go against the, the abortion uh, law, right? So, mm-hmm. so some mother probably lost her baby, right? And, mm-hmm. and it was donated for science. Um, we don't actually know that, but I'm saying due to the fact that abortion was illegal, um, yeah, it seems, it seems to suggest that that could be. Um, and so uh, we don't know the story, but let's go a little bit deeper. Um, again, the HEK293T no longer contains fetal tissue cells, and so you're not putting um, the fetal tissue cells in your body, right? Like the, so this, that's not what's actually happening. Uh, we're benefiting from the cells of this of this baby um, that died, and it became an immortalized cell line. So I know I'm just repeating myself there, but listen to Joe Carter from the Gospel Coalition. He said this, if the abortion uh, was conducted in order to harvest tissues that were to be used for the purpose of creating a cell line, then it would be clearly immoral. But in the case of HEK293T, even if an abortion occurred, it was not carried out for that reason. And the tissue was acquired for the purpose of medical research only after the death of the child occurred for other reasons. This has significant consequences for determining whether such research is either licit or immoral. So basically, if people are 
killing babies to make vaccines, that's, that's immoral. But in this case, the baby died for unknown reasons and its body is used for science. So if we think of it this way, like if somebody in our city was murdered, that's horrible. It's awful. It's terrible. Uh, it's tragic. But if you and I heard that an organ from their body, like a heart or a kidney, was used to help someone with an organ transplant, we probably wouldn't object, right? We would say the person who received the kidney transplant is not, uh, did not cause that murder right. of that man. Um, and so, uh, so if they die um, for a different reason, their body can be used for the common good. It seems like we as Christians are okay with that as a concept. So anyway, so Joe Carter again, quote, most Christian ethicists agree that fetal tissue donation is not inherently unethical if the tissue was obtained from a spontaneous abortion or miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy um, and was willingly donated by the parent. Such donations would be similar to a parent agreeing to donate the organs of an infant or child who had died by natural causes. Okay, so let me just land this plane quickly here. First, it's an immortalized cell line. They no longer contain actual body parts of babies. Number two, there are not many babies dying for these COVID vaccines. Um, uh, Number three, we just don't know this baby's story. Um, But it's good to know that abortions were illegal at the time. Um, So give some hope, maybe minor hope, that the baby was not uh, aborted. And then finally, donating fetal tissue would be similar to a parent agreeing to donate the organs um, for a child who had died of natural causes. Now, here's the deal. Um, These points gave me um, uh, enough clarity to get the vaccine because this was my biggest thing. And and it may not be yours if you're listening to this podcast, but it was my biggest thing. And we can never have 100% certainty around this. But I understand that that if you as a Christian, if you're listening to this, you you might still feel uncomfortable with this storyline. But for me, this gave me enough moral clarity to get vaccinated. Okay, I'm done. Thoughts for, <laughs> thoughts from you guys? <laughs> no, that's what good. That's I, yeah. I actually hadn't heard I hadn't heard of this argument until like very recently, um, and I think that the I think the way that you put it as far as if someone was if someone so number one it's it's it sounds like it it very likely it, it wasn't actually an abortion for this one baby, um, but but I like the analogy of saying like yeah if someone was murdered and um and the family decided to use you know whatever organs to donate back to science or to, for someone who needed it yeah i think i think most people would be like yeah that that makes sense it's not as though and of course that's a clear distinction from saying you know we will we will murder all these people like you think of horrible scenarios from nazi like uh, you know hitler's germany and you know like uh, where you know that some of these kinds of things were actually happening but unless we unless we discover that it's like no no this is there are all these babies that are, are being aborted in order to make these vaccines, which is clearly not the case at all, then yeah, that, that definitely feels like a, feels like a kind of a no brainer for me. Right. Yeah. I think you did a great job. Yeah. For sure. Did I botch um, the biology there? I don't think so. No, I okay. think you did great. I think there would also have to be quite a few things that would have to fall perfectly in place for it to be from an abortion specifically, because like you said, it wasn't legal. And I think if somebody was to have an illegal abortion, first of all, um, in order to get the fetal tissue to a place of research or science quickly enough that it would still be viable enough to use, then you'd have to have a pretty thought out plan. I don't think it would be able to be like an illegal abortion somewhere and then somehow get to this, this science center. And especially in the 1970s, I mean, 
things are a little bit more regulated even back then compared to, you know, the studies that you were referring to earlier or like the first vaccination that was made in like the 1700s or something. So I think that, um, yeah, a lot of things would, it seems like a lot of chances would have to fall in place for this to be specifically from an aborted fetus and then still be able to be used that quickly to be viable for research. Right. Yeah. So good. Yeah. That makes sense. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, that's, that's so good. Um, okay. Um, it, it is interesting. I just do want to note just to be fact, just to be clear, Johnson and Johnson used a different immortalized cell line. And I just want to be honest with all of you that I have not researched that one. Okay. So feel free to be a chimpanzee and go off and explore that cell line. It's like, PE.C6 or something like that. So it has its own story. But anyway, um, uh, so the Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca use that one. All right, let's keep moving. Um, a second big pushback. Um, so it's so the mRNA vaccines, uh, such as Moderna and Pfizer, do they change our DNA, right? So here's this um, new technology Apparently, it's not so new. It's been worked on for a while. But um, there's this new technology. Does it change our DNA? And so mRNA vaccines, uh, they, I learned this recently, they teach our cells how to make protein or even just a piece of a protein that triggers uh, an immune response inside our bodies. That immune response produces antibodies. But the fear that people have is that this actually will change our very DNA. But um, I read a John Hopkins article, um, this hospital medical research center in Baltimore, and they write this. So I'm just quoting them. Quote, the messenger RNA from two of the first types of COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, does enter cells, but not the nucleus of the cells where DNA resides. The mRNA does its job to cause the cell to make protein, to stimulate the immune system, and then it quickly breaks down without affecting your DNA. So I guess, Laura, help me out here. (laughs) The mRNA does not affect the nucleus of the cell where the DNA resides. And that to me was like, that seems like a simple answer. It doesn't affect your DNA. Yeah, definitely. So the mRNA, I think I think there's a lot that goes along with this that people have fair hesitations about because it does seem very new. This is the first mass vaccination situation that has used this type of technology. But like you just alluded to, it's not brand new science. So Moderna, for example, has been doing this, I believe it's since 2010. And they've been doing this research, not just about vaccines, but for looking into how can this technology possibly help us fight against other diseases as well. Hmm. So um, it seems, and that's one of the points to make too, just about how it seems like this has happened quite fast, but they've already been doing this technology. So it it's, was, to put it simply, like a little bit more of an easy situation because they just had to take the technology that they already had and figure out how to make the COVID virus work with this technology. Hmm. So kind of had like the groundwork already. They just had mm. to apply it. So yeah, you're totally right. It doesn't go into the nucleus. So basically, if we can back up a little bit, the way vaccines work and even our immune system works is that um, a vaccine gets injected or in the case of a foreign invader, like a germ or something, your body sees this and recognizes it as a threat and 
makes antibodies against it so that the next time your body sees it, it's ready and it can fight it and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And so other vaccinations in the past and the AstraZeneca basically have um, a similar shape, if you will, to what the virus looks like. And so the, the body recognizes that shape immediately and starts to make antibodies. But yeah, the, for the MN, for the um, new vaccination, the mRNA, so what happens is, like you said, it's just a piece of the mRNA and it goes into the cell and the cell translates that into the spike protein. So like all the pictures you've seen of COVID, it's got all those spiky things on it. That's basically the characteristic of this virus that sets it apart from other viruses. And that's also the characteristic that helps it to enter our cells and cause damage. So that was just the easiest thing for them to target. So it actually makes basically that same type of spike protein and puts it on the surface of your cell. So your body sees that cell and starts making antibodies against it. Now, the way that this mRNA works is that as soon as it has made that protein, it doesn't need that blueprint anymore. Um, the blueprint enters the vaccine or the vaccine and that blueprint enters through like a lipid protein situation to get it into the cell. So as soon as that bl blueprint is used, your body says, what's all this lipid protein doing? And what are these blueprints here for? We don't need them. So it takes it away basically right away. And so, yeah, you're right. It never actually is there long enough to get into the nucleus of your cell where the DNA is. So there's no way that it can change your DNA and it's the products of it are expelled pretty quickly as soon as that protein is made by your body. Wow. It's so fascinating. Hey, it's like such a, yeah. like, hmm. thanks for that. Because it, like, uh, I, I was telling my friend Andrew, when I was like researching this, I was like, man, it's hard for my brain to wrap, wrap around the science of this. Mm -hmm. But, uh, do you get it, Corey? Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> no problem. It's not that hard, Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I was laughing as I'm hearing, I heard Matthew's, Matthew's explanation and then, and then hearing Laura's I'm like, Laura's was way better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> way better. No, just kidding. No, no, it is super fascinating. Honestly, and let's just take a moment and appreciate our creator. Like, honestly, I'm just like, I hear yeah. this stuff and I'm like, man, like to the smallest cell, like you're just like, it's like, it's so fascinating. Like yeah. God, just like what, what a brilliant mind, you know what I mean? Behind totally. all of this. It's, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I heard Francis Collins, who is part of the Human Genome Project. He's a Christian uh, scientist, and he, he knows all about DNA, and he seemed completely fine with this, you know, not, you know uh, in terms of affecting your DNA. It's, he's like, nope, like this is, this is very safe. And so, yeah, thank you for that, mm -hmm. uh, Laura. And yeah, so, so good. So hopefully that gave some answers to some people, like this will not affect your DNA. All right. Number I three. Think, can I add one thing? Oh, yeah, 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 Laura. I think, too, that people get nervous because it is a new thing and it sounds like DNA. But um, basically, we have to understand, too, why they would want to make this technology. And these vaccinations can be more easily made. They're just made with things that are readily available in labs. So they're easier to make, basically. There's, there's some issues with stability and keeping them stable. But they are something that can be from my understanding, a lot more mass produced and easily applicable to different things. Hmm. So as long as like they have the same original formula and then they can just um, essentially add whatever virus or disease that we're trying to work on. Um, so it's, it's could be just something that's like, it's an easier technology to be able to use readily hmm. as a reason, instead of just doing the old vaccination methods. Right. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah.
All right, number three. The trials were rushed and corners were cut, so we can't trust the evidence. That's the third pushback. Okay, like this is important. Like doesn't it usually take like 10 years to, to develop a vaccine, uh, but now within a year we have multiple vaccines. Mm. Seems like there's something fishy going on. Seems like maybe corners were cut. Uh, how can I trust uh, the science of a vaccine that was so rushed? Um, because apparently the previous record was a mumps vaccine that was made in the 1960s and it took about four years. That was like the fastest at the time. So these COVID vaccines have come to us in under a year. Yikes. Mm -hmm. So can we trust it? Well, um, I found some pretty cool answers by um, uh, an epidemiologist, epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa named Rewat Dianandan. So uh, they are a PhD and they offered some, some cool thoughts. So first of all, um, uh, this professor said um, that there was a huge head start uh, to this process. So we already, so I'm just going to quote uh, the doctor. We had already seen um, MERS and SARS years back. In both those instances, preliminary, preliminary work had begun on developing a coronavirus vaccine for humans. Yes, they already exist for some animals. So some of the basic work was already present. This also saved time. The mRNA technology was being developed for years, and it wasn't just developed this past year. So there was a head start, number one. Number two, uh, community. The scientific community has been enriching itself with an extraordinary capacity. Virologists, microbiologists, epidemiologists, data scientists in both public and private sectors for decades. This is not the same world that we had in the 1960s. Vaccine discovery could be fast because we had the capacity in terms of expertise and in human resources to make it fast. All right, that's point two. Point three, money. Money. Probably the single biggest reason we could move so fast was because governments, primarily the U.S. government, underwrote the risk for drug companies. Clinical trials are expensive ordeals, and so few companies are willing to roll the financial dice on low probability or new technologies without great assurances of success. But when there's no financial risk, they're free to explore any technological avenue they wish. So in this way, over 100 candidates could bear half a dozen promising vaccines, all of which receive full funding for several very, very expensive and thorough clinical trials, resulting in the number of licensed products circulating in the world today. I thought that was one of the most compelling ones, the third yeah. one, money, right? Like, that's huge. I had no idea that... Um, that there were uh, governments and even private donors who underwrote the risk for drug companies. Um, almost done here. Number four, efficiency. There really were no delays. Some companies started manufacturing doses in the millions before the phase three trials were commenced because they were anticipating a good outcome, right? And so, you know, they were already making them before they were approved. Now, that doesn't mess with the science. It just, it just says they were already, they said, this is our product and we're pre-producing them um, just so that we can get them immediately into people's arms if it gets approved, um, which was a risk, but that's huge. And number five, large trials. This is my last point here, large trials. The phase three trials for the leading candidates, vaccines, enrolled about 40,000 people each. I read 43,000. That's a huge number of people. This allowed each trial to reach its endpoint uh, faster. By the way, I read some studies. This seems like 10 times the amount that a normal vaccine would mm. use. Mm. Um, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the trials were concluded when a certain number of COVID positive cases were detected. 
in both the vaccine and placebo arms. Um, if you only have a couple thousand uh, people, a part of this, it would take a very long time to reach that endpoint. But having the money and the eagerness of participants to recruit about 40,000 people in each trial meant that the endpoint was reached in a matter of weeks, not months or years. Hmm. So to me, if you put those five things together, so the head start, the community, the money, the efficiency, and the large trials... I came to the conclusion when I was looking at this like a chimpanzee that I'm like, no, it doesn't look like any short shortcuts were taken. Nothing that could have been done in a non-pandemic year was missed in these trials. They were conducted just as you would uh, any other clinical trial of this nature. So anyway, what do you guys think of that? And want to add something to that, Laura? Or Yeah, I will say um, with all of this, and I should have said this before, is I recognize that there's a lot of things that cause us to have fear about this vaccination and even me being in the scientific community and taking courses about immunizations and giving immunizations, I still had pause when I, when it was my turn to get immunized. So when I got immunized, it was very early on in January and the numbers just didn't seem very big yet. So I was nervous. I felt like, well, I'd like to wait till April or May when there's like millions and millions of people. And I can see that the speed of the development and all this doesn't result in us missing things. So I can definitely recognize this as being a big thing that causes people fear because I for sure felt that. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I will just add to the large trials is that in previous vaccinations and even as drugs are getting tested, not only do you need willing participants, but you need um, a vast amount of the illness to be able to see if it's going to work. So because COVID is across the globe, we can see how it's going to work in many different areas of the world and we have enough sample size. If you're looking at something like even like a medication for high blood pressure, sure, high blood pressure is prevalent, but you need enough people that have high blood pressure available that are also willing to do the study. And often you just don't have enough people or for other immunizations Mm. like perhaps the mumps when it went faster because there was more an outbreak perhaps at that time. I'm not sure for sure. But I think that's another reason this could go faster is we could test very quickly. You just have to have someone go outside or go walk into a crowd of people and you can test very quickly if it's going to be effective against the virus where Mm -hmm. other things we just don't have as broad scale of illness to be able to test it on. So, um, Yeah, in terms of the steps, I was, like I said, I was concerned about this, but in looking into it deeper, especially in Canada, we have very, very rigorous methods by which we decide if we're going to actually let something be used. So when you look through the clinical trials and the phases that got it approved in Canada, they didn't miss any steps. So like you said, some of it just seems fast. It also seems fast because... um, the only thing that they did a little bit differently was some of the phases of the clinical trials could be overlapped a little bit. So kind of like you said, they mass produced before phase three was done because they had already seen how effective it was. And for example, they started in one study, I saw that they started the phase three studies when the preliminary data was halfway through the previous study. And the preliminary data was just so effective that it was enough to be able to start that second phase or the third phase. So in other Mm. clinical trials, yeah, it just takes longer to be able to get through the phases. So I can definitely verify that based on it getting approved in Canada, it went through all of the normal approval processes. Um, And I think a good thing people to know too, is that just because it's on the market and people are getting it doesn't mean that Canada has stopped 
researching and watching this. So any sort of adverse event that happens and basically adverse event just means something that's not expected. So you guys both had some symptoms that would have been expected. For me, I had a sore arm for a few days. That's all expected. So that's not considered adverse, but anything else that's outside of that. So if somebody has an allergic reaction, for example, every single one of those cases is reported and Canada is consistently and it would be daily at this point looking at all that data and as soon as they find that there is something they have the ability to easily stop the production or the stop buying it and stop using it so to me that felt really good to know that we didn't skip any of the phases to approve it in Canada and we're not skipping any of the monitoring so Canada's watching very very carefully and now months and months in and millions of people have got it there I mean there's as we've watched with AstraZeneca, there's been some changes and going back and forth as they learn more. But on the whole, they haven't seen big, big, big problems that suggest that this is a riskier choice than not getting immunized. That's right. That's right. And of course, that's probably where the blood clots come out. It's like, but you, but we have to recognize that, that um, you know, tens of millions and now over, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people are in the West and all over the world are being tracked and their personal health. And so that is cool that we were able to catch some of these blood clots, but that's only happening because people are monitoring millions of people and how they're reacting. And yeah, so, exactly. yeah. And it's like, I feel like it's like every, when you, when you take Advil, like there, there's potential side effects, or if you take any Medicaid, there's always like potential side effects. Right. And that always feels like, and even the, like the AstraZeneca with the blood clots, like, is it fair to say, is it is it fair to say like when it comes to science like like so we fly in airplanes knowing that there is a mine like teeny 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 chance that there will be a side effect you know what I mean that, that the that the airplane will crash that something bad will happen right there's a small percentage but we all still fly in airplanes because we believe that that it's worth the risk by far right yeah getting in your car every morning getting in your car every morning there's yeah, a the small risk. chance yeah, yeah that you might. And I'm like, okay, so this, it seems like it's kind of a, sort of a, the same kind of thing, at least as far as the numbers are showing us. Well, that, well, that's totally true. Like, I feel like Corey, that's such a good point. Like life is a risk. Everything you do, there is, there's always risk to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, it, it would make sense that there is there, of course there's a risk with yeah. taking this. And I don't think we want to have this podcast saying, don't worry, you're going to be fine for sure. We don't, we don't have any certainty, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Um, but but it does seem that due to the millions and millions of people that are getting these vaccines, and the um, it does testing. And yeah, it feels like it's quite, quite small of a risk. Yeah. And I think as in talking about risks, we as humans, we're constantly trying to like weigh the risks and benefits of everything like you guys just referenced. And um, in terms of considering what behaviors are risky and less risky, research has shown that we think that things are more risky that we aren't as familiar with, things that are newer, things that are man-made, things that mm. don't see, seem natural. So it makes sense for us to generally feel that this vaccine might be a high-risk behavior because we don't know about it. It's new. It seems man-made. It seems perhaps unnatural. Wow. But when you actually look at the statistics, you have to decide statistically wise, is this actually a high risk behavior? So just because it feels like it, because we're not familiar with it, doesn't actually necessarily correlate to it being high risk. So an example I have from my practice is when I was pregnant with my third child, I was exposed to a very risky virus and I was pregnant. So I was offered 
um, an antibiotic to take kind of prophylactically saying like, you've been exposed to this, you might not get it, but you might, so do you want to take this antibiotic? And being pregnant, I felt concerned for my baby and wondering like, oh, like what are the risks? I'm actually going to get it. What are not? And then when I did the research based on um, the possible side effects of giving the antibiotic to my baby, it seemed like they didn't know for sure if it was going to cause a problem, but the, what the research did show is that this particular organism in pregnant people carried a 50% mortality risk. So wow. for me, it felt like a risky thing to take an antibiotic because I didn't know for sure what it was going to have, like what effects would happen to the baby, but it felt like a higher risk thing to choose not to be given that there was a 50% mortality. So I think that we do have to weigh the risks and benefits of the anti or of the immunization. Um, we also have to weigh the risks of not taking it in terms of getting COVID. So like Corey, you referenced flying and my math isn't perfect, probably. I should have asked Ryan to go over it with me, but I did look at and I found a stat that one in 5,944 people will get a blood clot from flying. That trans translates to about 0.17%. And the blood clots from the vaccine, from the AstraZeneca, currently sits at 0.004%. So quite a lot higher risk of getting a blood clot from flying. But that is seemed as less risky because we're familiar with flying. We do yeah, it. Yeah. We want to do it for our lifestyle. We want to get places versus the vaccination, which seems like a higher risk because we're not familiar with it. We hear these terrible stories and it feels like it's a very risky thing. Laura, that was like a mic drop moment. Yeah. <laughs> because I literally thought you were going to give some stat about planes crashing, but you went yeah. from like planes and you connected to blood clots. I've never even thought about blood clots flying. Yeah. And I didn't even know that was possible. Sorry. Now I know it's one out of 5,000. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. But, that's very cool. But we're willing to take the risk. Yeah. yeah. I just think we need to be gracious with ourselves and recognize that they are risky things, but we also have to look at what are the risks. So people that are hospitalized, a lot of the treatment has to do with being proactive against blood clots. So, um, I'm not an ICU nurse, but from what I've heard from colleagues and read is that a lot of these people that are that's where a lot of the bad things are happening is from things like blood clots wow. so yeah. again it's hmm. all about assessing the risk and deciding is something actually high risk when i look at the data and i look yeah. at the alternate because i know a lot of people have said that they're willing to take their risk of getting covid but they're not willing to take the risk of what could happen with the vaccination but for me when you look at the stats and like we've just discussed it actually doesn't seem like as high risk activity compared sure. to getting COVID. Sure. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So number four, uh, big pharma has a hidden agenda and is seeking to make a profit from this pandemic. That's a pushback that I've heard. Um, so what do we make of this? Um, well, first I just want to say that, um, I found out that AstraZeneca specifically is promising to charge at a price that just covers the cost. So it's actually a break even thing for them. So there's actually, they're not looking to profit from this and they're not going to profit. Mm -hmm. um, Moderna is a bit different, but I thought that's, in, that's interesting. Like AstraZeneca is, is, um, is one of the leaders here and they are, they're just going to cover their cost. The second thing I, I noted was that the profit window will be actually quite small for these companies. Um, this is from the BBC. Uh, so uh, there's uh, someone named Emily Field from Barclays uh, thinks that the, the window to make profits will be very temporary. Um, 
so the BBC writes this, quote, even if the front runners don't share their intellectual property, they are already more than, there are already more than 50 vaccines in clinical trials around the world. In two years' time, there could be 20 vaccines on the market. It's going to be difficult to charge a premium price. So, so, so Emily Field from Barclays is just saying there's going to be a competition. Um, so there's not going to be like a monopoly, right? Like one company that's able to charge, you know, through the roof. There's going to be a competitive edge here. And so the profit window will be very small. Third, uh, big, big pharma companies aren't doing better in the pandemic, I found out. This is not actually, <laughs> this is, the, they're not doing better. Actually, um, my friend who, who works with a pharmaceutical company said this. I'm just going to quote him. Um, uh, like most industries, pharma is generally making less revenue during COVID because people are not getting diagnosed for other things as frequently. And as such, they're making less money because there are less prescriptions being filled. In addition, significantly less research is being done on non-COVID disease. So that is halting economic growth. I thought... I didn't know that. That's interesting. So mm. the idea that like big pharma has this hidden agenda and is seeking to kind of really profit from this doesn't actually appear to be true. Um, so, you know, so maybe the deeper question is, do I trust big pharmaceutical companies? And Laura, you and I were having a conversation about this and uh, you gave me this story about like a tetanus shot. Do you want to just share that with people? Yeah, definitely. So Again, working in the emergency room, I do see a whole gamut of people and their responses to vaccinations and prophylactic antibiotics and things like that. And um, I've had it a number of times where somebody will come in that has previously chosen to not vaccinate and now they've got an injury for which tetanus is a high risk. And then at that point, they I have never had it where has someone at that point when they know they're at high risk for tetanus has at that point turned down the tetanus shot. Um so it's very interesting just because when it seems that often when the rubber hits the road and you're face to face with this, then you're often going to take it. Um, and I think that it goes the same for other medications too. So I remember thinking when I was, had my first, like, I'm going to parent this way, I'm going to breastfeed, and I'm not going to let anything touch my baby's gut until six months because I want to make it all natural. And then with our second child, she was born with a medical condition, and within a day, they said she needs to start having medication or her heart is going to fail her. Mm -hmm. And it was a no-brainer. I thought mm -hmm. I threw everything out the window, what I thought before about this is how it's supposed to happen, right. and I took the medication. So I think that that's an interesting thought is just that when something is proactive, sometimes it feels not very necessary. And then as soon as we need it, people often will do it yeah. and take right, it. Right, right. So it's just an interesting way that when you ask yourself, if I'm face to face with this, am I still going to turn something down that it was going to very likely save a life? Right. Totally. Well, well, totally. And, 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 you know, if we're going to if we're going to judge these pharmaceutical, which by the way, n none of us, I don't think any of us, three of us are saying pharmaceutical companies are angels. I mean, I don't think, I don't <laughs> think we're here totally. to say that today, yeah, yeah. but I did think I just need to think about just the, the logic behind, um, saying no to one thing a pharmaceutical company makes yet saying yes to a bunch of things that they make totally. the same company. And, and I had this realization with AstraZeneca cause I thought, Oh, it was funny. I was giving my son, my son, my kids all have lung issues and my son had a puffer and I grabbed, it was, this was like two weeks ago. I grabbed the box and it says AstraZeneca. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, they make my son's puffer. Right. And I had known this a while ago, but mm -hmm. I did, I hadn't realized I hadn't thought about it for a while. 
And I thought, oh, it, it, would, be, it would be ironic for me to say, I don't trust Big Pharma, but yet I'm, I've been giving this puffer to my son. You know, so again, I know some of these things are apples and oranges, but it is, it is important to be kind of like consistent in, sure. yeah, in yeah. what we mean when we, yeah. Totally. I think our approach too to how we perceive healthcare, because if for me, like I said, I was a little bit nervous getting the immunization, to be honest with you. And for a couple of weeks ahead of time, I asked like every doctor I worked with, I said, what do you think? What do you think is the right thing to do? Are you going to do it? And without fail, every single one of the doctors that I spoke with was like, I'm absolutely doing it. The research is sound. And so I started thinking if I can trust doctors with my kids and with my own health, but I'm not going to choose to trust them with this, then there seems to be a bit of incongruence here. Additionally, I also felt like if all the doctors in this busy emergency room go down from this immunization, we're all in a lot of trouble anyways. So <laughs> might as well <laughs> exactly. go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Take the plunge. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, good. Well, maybe, um, maybe we'll transition to our final pushback here. And I'll just be actually quicker than I planned to be on this one. But um, I, this may just be for a few of you who are listening to this podcast, <laughs> maybe not for many, but I did, I do know that anytime something with the, that when we start thinking about the end time, some people are afraid about something like this being the mark of the beast. And whether it's, you know, um, you know, people talk about microchips or people talking about barcodes, people are talking about, um, cell phones or credit cards or like, I think Christians sometimes are always wondering, is this the mark of the beast? And I, I just want to explain a little bit about the mark of the beast and hopefully put some people's um, uh, just hearts at ease. And um, we finally arrived at the point in the podcast where I feel like I can contribute something from my own studies, <laughs> not from um, from that's not science based necessarily. But like when we study the Bible, I think it's really important. And let me just say this as a general note here, that the mark of the beast really has everything to do with who you worship. And if you know you're not worshiping another Lord, you you don't have the mark of the beast, right? Like if you worship Christ and you love Christ, the mark of the, of the beast is not this sudden thing that you accidentally have. It's actually a very conscious decision to be marked in worship, uh, uh, to worship the beast. And this, this is a phrase that comes from the book of Revelation chapter 13. If you'll read the book of Revelation, you'll actually see that, that a, a mark or a seal is placed on people who love God in the book of Revelation. So Revelation 7, uh, I'm quoting the book of Revelation here. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, right? So these are people who love God. They're sealed on their forehead. Uh, Revelation 9, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Uh, Revelation 14, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then Revelation 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So in the book of Revelation, there is this sense in which those who love God are sealed. Uh, there's a mark on them, on their foreheads, that they belong to Christ. Um, Sam Storms writes this, no one I know believes that all Christians will literally and physically have the name of Jesus tattooed on their forehead. This is simply a way of describing that those who are born again and redeemed belong to the Father and are preserved in faith by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this is just really Revelation's apocalyptic image of what it means to belong to Jesus. You have a, you've been marked on your forehead. So then in Revelation 13, sorry, I'll try to make this quicker. Revelation 13, uh, John sees the second beast, 
And by the way, if you're just new to Christianity or listening to this, uh, maybe we'll do a series on Revelation one day because I know we're <laughs> jumping in the deep end here. But John has these visions, these apocalyptic visions where he sees the second beast. And this beast um, comes from the land and does a bunch of fake miracles to get people to worship a first beast. And so biblical scholars believe that this, this is really, this, this image of a beast is just an image. It's a helpful image that early Christians would have understood that these, this is a false worship. And the false worship connects with the first beast, which is false political powers. So basically it's politics and religion combined together, these two beasts that are combined together, um, and, and leading the world astray, right? And so this second beast... Uh, really is what early Christians would have called the cult of the emperor worship. What this means is that early Christians would probably have been pressured by the world around them to worship Caesar as God, right? So Emperor Nero, right? To worship Nero as God. Oftentimes they would have to go into like a market in order to buy and sell. They would have to take a pinch of incense and throw it on an altar and say Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. And so really they, they would have a mark of allegiance to Caesar. And so remember, again, this is not like a mark that you suddenly get upon you. Like, oh my goodness, I didn't know my credit card was the mark. or I didn't know my cell phone was the mark. Or like early Christians are like, no, the mark would be very clear. You would be making your mark. And the, uh, the thing here is that a mark or the stamp, that language is, is actually used for a coin as well. So it's the stamp of the Caesar, right? Like, so it's like Caesar's image on a coin. Hmm. And notice that in the book of Revelation, that the mark is on your right hand and uh, the left hand being unclean, the right hand being what you would use with finances or to trade. And so this very well could be um, just this image of like uh, coins or that pinch of incense or some kind of way in which you're saying Caesar is Lord and God is not. Like Jesus is not Lord, uh, uh, Caesar is Lord. And so... um, And so anyway, N.T. Wright writes this. He says, quote, it's more or less certain that the number for the mark, number 666, represents um, Nero Caesar when it's written out in Hebrew or Aramaic characters. Some of you guys know that that in in, in the Bible, sometimes you can attribute like a letter to a number. And so actually when you when you when you see 666, the name can actually spell out in the Hebrew or Aramaic Nero Caesar. And so. Um, and not only would it, would it, would it come to, to, to be Nero Caesar, Caesar, but 666 is, is, uh, six is an imperfect number because it's one less than seven and God's number is seven, seven, seven. It's three times a perfect number, right? So 666 is like three times imperfection. So to worship Caesar is to be, it's imperfect worship. Sorry. Okay. I'm really going to land this plane here. The point is, the point I want to make is this, and I won't read some of the rest of the stuff I wrote here. The point here is that this is all about worship. And early Christians would know if they were carrying a coin or putting a pinch of incense and that it was worshiping Nero as, as, as Lord. They would have known this. Um, this is not like uh, a surprise. And so, but Christians would have known that they were marked with the spirit. They were marked with the sense that you love the Lord. And so, so you're either marked with Christ or marked by the beast. And it really has to do with who you worship. So this is not um, something we need to fear. You don't accidentally get marked 
with the mark of the beast, this is something very intentional. So I would ask you as a podcast listener, who do you worship? Who do you worship? And if you worship Jesus, then you have been marked in him with the spirit. And if you worship anything else as Lord, then you have been marked with the, with that mark of the beast. Right. And so, uh, I do not as a pastor believe that it has anything to do with this vaccine at all. Um, so yeah, so hopefully that puts you at ease. We could go into a Revelation series at some other point. Did, was that clear, by the way, Corey, Laura? <laughs> yeah. Did I just confuse no, totally. everybody? No, um, that was no, no, that was good. Yeah, totally. It's, yeah, it feels like one of those. Um, again, it, it's not something that I I wasn't even even aware of before before we started talking about this discussion. Just as, that people would think that I guess so they is the idea that pe- people were concerned that like how how would they translate that idea of the mark of the beast being the vaccine? Is it just because you're getting a, a little pinprick in your uh, arm? No, yes, um, because the idea here is that you can't buy or sell, um, uh, that, that, that basically the beast is going to give you some kind of thing and that they're going to control you, right? Oh. And so you can't do commerce without the mark oh, I on see. your life. So, so yeah, the idea yeah, yeah. is that maybe I'm a Christian, but like the vaccine's going to put this microchip in me or some kind of thing in me and then, and then, and then either A, it's going to control me or I won't be able to do any business unless I show my vaccination card, unless I whatever. And then the government's going to control all of it. And then we're going to be worshiping the beast. And I'm saying in the book of Revelation, it is v- you are very much aware of whether you worship the beast or you worship God. Hmm. It's not an accident. You s- don't suddenly get the mark and you're like, oh, I got marked. That's not how it works. Gotcha. Um, okay. Early Christians would have known like been very intentional. So, Hmm. okay. I spent too much time on that, but it's okay. No, it's fascinating. Okay. Any thoughts, Laura, on that? (laughs) No. Yeah. Laura, what what are your, (laughs) what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. The only thing I was, would say is that I feel like if it is the mark of the beast, it's, ineffective it's like a seems like a really roundabout way because yeah unless there's some sort of a computer detectable thing there's unless you or unless you're still wearing your i got vaccinated sticker there's not an easy way to see that i have this i have this mark so <laughs> right 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 it right, just yeah. seems ineffective compared to a forehead tattoo <laughs> it's, like, it's like a failed experiment yeah, yeah. Hmm. All right. Hey, uh, final encouragement here and i'll open up to you guys too just to say any final thoughts um i would say i think you know talk to your doctor that's one thing I would just encourage you to do. Uh, you know, if you're going to, if you are like someone who is going to make a wager on whether Facebook blogs are giving you the truth or your doctor is giving you the truth, I think as Christians, it's okay to say we believe that there are such things as experts. And this is one of the things that really makes me nervous about um, sometimes Christian circles and hearing that we, that it's like we're living in a post-truth world where like we don't believe there's experts about anything. Um, but, but you know, I might know a lot about cars, but I trust that my mechanic uh, knows a lot, you know, and he may not be a perfect mechanic, but he has invested a lot of hours into being a mechanic or a heart surgeon, you know, mm-hmm. they, they probably aren't perfect heart surgeons, but they've put a lot of their life into learning about the heart. Uh, you can think about, about a pilot or an engineer. Um, so can doctors, mechanics, heart surgeons, pilots, engineers, can they be wrong? 100%. They could totally be wrong. But at a certain point, I'm going to have to make a decision about who I trust. And it's, it's, you know, and you're going to have to make a decision about who you trust. It's really up to you. But in my life, I want to trust those who have spent way more years thinking about a particular issue um, than just, 
you know, hey, I read this blog on Facebook. So I would encourage you, just talk to your doctor and just say, what, what do you suggest? Um, that would be a word for me. What, any final thoughts from you guys or anything you want to share? Yeah, I do have one final thing that I think is quite important in the discussion, and that's about herd immunity. So basically herd immunity just means that we need enough people to be um, immunized either through the immunization or through having COVID. So enough people to be like basically not able to catch COVID to have it stop. So analogy I've used before is like the candy crush game is that if you have like one candy that's surrounded by all the blue candies and you're trying to get to that red candy, you can't really because all the blue ones are blocking it. And so it's same with that with herd immunity is that if you have one person that might still be susceptible to COVID, but all the people around them are not susceptible, then COVID can't get to that person and COVID can't spread. It kind of stops just with the one contagious person. And so I think that when we're thinking about um, choices that we're making in terms of following the restrictions or choosing to get the immunization or not, we need to be thinking of ourselves as part of that herd immunity and deciding if we're going to be essentially like one of those red candies that other red candies can get to and pass the virus, if that makes any sense, or if we're going to be one of the, we'll use blue candies, where we're going to be part of the reason that the virus doesn't get to somebody else. And um, so some people have said that, well, why can't we just get herd immunity by having everybody get exposed to the virus? And truthfully, part of our herd immunity will include people that have had the virus. But the problem is that we can't do that because of how many people are getting sick and dying, and not just the lives lost, in terms of COVID, but if we let it, this virus go rampant, then every other illness and every other condition, like if you get in a car accident, there won't be medical staff or a hospital bed for you. If you have cancer or you need an upcoming surgery, that won't be available because herd immunity acquired from just letting the virus go will just take over everything and decimate everything. So I think that that's one more thing to consider is just looking outward about our choices in terms of how we act in the vaccination and deciding kind of what are we going to be doing to be contributing to the safety of others and those around us and like the whole society. That's really good. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware that you're saying that at a time when I'm watching the news in India right now and just mm -hmm. how, how it just got out of control. And I was listening to the New York times yesterday, talk about how quickly it got out of control within a month, like, like they're having, they're having a re recording over 300,000 COVID cases a day, but they say that because India sometimes it doesn't have the, the infrastructure that we do in terms of, they say it could be 10 times that amount of daily COVID rates um, every day in India. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Like, and so I just feel like to let it just go, like what you're saying, just to, you know, hey, we're going to get herd immunity by everyone just getting it. it it's devastating. And India is going through it right now. And, you know, we just, I just feel for that country and what they're going through. We saw Brazil go through it, um, Italy early on. And so anyway, like, yeah, it's a good word, Laura. Um, we want to do what we can to not let that happen. Totally. Yeah. Anything for you, Corey? Yeah, no, I just think, I think even just, this has been so great just hearing all this. And Laura, it's so awesome to have you here and yes. to provide all this amazing research and background of obviously your experience. I think for me, when I hear this, I'm just like, it seems like, like, unless you're, and maybe this is overstating it, but it feels like unless you're willing to like basically just say, I do not trust our healthcare system at all. Like, you know, it just seems to me, for me at least, I, I would say, because at least in general, I do trust the healthcare system, you know, here in Canada. And I do trust, you know, 99.9% .9 of doctors, you know, um, 
that's why I'm getting a vaccine because I, I don't know what the stats are. I'm sure there's a, you know, I'm sure there's one or two, you know, obscure doctors that are like, no, no, here's why it's a terrible idea. You know, I'm just like, well, I trust, I would say, hey, if, if you know, if 90, if 90% of doctors, you know, are saying that, and, and it's, I'm sure it's way, way more than that, are saying you should do this, then I'm like, okay, well, I, again, if I, as you said, if I step on a nail and I, you know, and I need to get some treatment, it's, I will go to a doctor because I trust our healthcare system. So anyways, yeah, I think this has been so great. And uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, there's some good information here. This has been awesome. Well, let's end with a word. I just really like this word from Joe Carter. Um, He writes this quote, this is an unprecedented blessing that would have been considered nothing less than miraculous for previous generation of Christians. While it's understandable that some people might be cautious Our first response to this news should be to express our thanks to a God who has made it possible to prevent the sickness and deaths of millions of people. So we are thankful. We serve a God of, 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 of miracles. We also serve a God who uses the miracle of medicine and uses bright scientists and Mm -hmm. doctors all over the world. And so we, I, I'm grateful that uh, at least we're moving inches closer to, to some healing here in our world. So, yeah. yeah. Again, thank you so much, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, thanks yeah, so much, good. guys. North Langley, we love you. Have an amazing uh, rest of your week, and we will talk to you soon. We love you. Mm-hmm.